open up to John 20, we really won't be there for a long time. I don't know if we'll even get there, but I'm going to be kind of reviewing a lot of what is in John 20, so you might want to be looking at it while I'm talking. All right, let's open up with a word of prayer and then get right into our study. If you'd bow with me, Father God, thank you for the privilege that we have, that you have made possible for us to again gather with our beloved sisters in Christ, to enjoy fellowship with one another, to help encourage and comfort one another in our life walk, to lift each other up in prayer, and most of all, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by your spirit using your word so that we might do that which is good and acceptable and pleasing in your sight. This morning, we submit ourselves to your word which sifts and analyzes and and judges the very thoughts and intents and purposes of our hearts. May we each grow in our discernment of the doctrine of the Christian faith so that we refute the arguments and the theories and the false doctrines and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of you and against the true person of your Son, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now I ask that we would focus without distraction on him, and may he be glorified But by what you accomplish in this room in the next hour, for we ask it in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen. All over the world, there exist magnificent, beautiful, and unique buildings that you can go and visit but they are actually nothing but mausoleums. They are big, expensive, ornate, sometimes very unique tombs. And people visit them from all over the world. Probably some of you have gone and seen some of these. Has anybody traveled to India? What building do you think of when, you, when I say India? Taj Mahal. Has anybody ever been to the Taj Mahal here? No? Nobody. Okay, well, I haven't either. But you know what it is? It's a mausoleum for a 17th century Indian leader and his wife. You can go to France, and you can see Napoleon's tomb. You can go to Rome, and you can see the burial place of many of the past popes of the Roman church. Um, You can go to Japan and see many elaborate tombs of the past emperors. And you can go to Egypt, although I wouldn't exactly recommend that right now. But um, you could see the pyramids. Now, that's one I have seen, the pyramids. What are they? Tombs for past pharaohs and their wives. And you can go to Medina or Medina in Saudi Arabia. Again, I would not recommend doing that. But you could see who is buried in one of the mosques there, Muhammad. All over the world, there exist these exquisite tombs and fancy fancy burial places for many of the rich and famous people of this world. But when you go to Jerusalem to see the tomb of the greatest person who has ever lived, there is simply this plain, kind of dirty white cave, you could call it, hewn out of a rock cave. And the world asks, the Christians, well, if you say he's the greatest person who has ever lived, where is all the gold? If he's so great, where is the exquisite building? Where is all the ornate edifice, the marble, the ivory? None of that is there, is it? Why? Because we don't need it. 
We don't need it. We don't need any of that on this tomb because there is nobody there. There is nobody in that tomb. That tomb really doesn't mean a thing except for the fact that it is empty. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ does not exist even in one little cell of dust or DNA on any square footage of this globe. He is gone. He has risen, just as he said. And all God's people said, amen. (laughs) This fall semester, we are going to be discussing primarily the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 11 of them recorded for us before his ascension to his Father in heaven. We have already discussed the first two, which were to, don't we love it? Women. The first two post-resurrection appearances were to women. Okay, there were three other post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ after his ascension to heaven. We will not be discussing those, but if you put them all together, there are 14 recorded post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. Now, we know he probably appeared many times other than those recorded for us, but those are how many are recorded. Three after his ascension. One was to Stephen, the first martyr of the church. The second one was to Saul on, his, on the road to Damascus. And he became, of course, the Apostle Paul. And the third post-resurrection after, I should say post-ascension post-resurrection appearance was to John when he was exiled as an old man on the Isle of Patmos. Now, since it has been a while since we met, I don't know how many weeks, 16 or something like that, Um, And since we do have some new faces among us, what I want to do this morning is a quick review, not of the first 12 years of our Life of Christ study. I would really have to put my lips on fast motion to do that. (laughs) And you might be here a while. But what I am going to do is a jet tour of kind of the last few lessons where we left off in May. All right. So hang on to your booties, cuties, because here we go. This, by the way, is Lesson 187 in your books. The first part, just read to page 125. You'll see a break there. It talks about his first two post-resurrection appearances to women. So that's where we are. There were so many women named Mary in Israel at the time of Christ that one particular Mary was referred to by her Galilean city of origin, which was Magdala. What was her name? Mary Magdalene. Jesus had delivered her from her utter bondage to the powers of darkness when sometime earlier in his earthly ministry, and she had been serving him faithfully. I mean, she had been delivered from seven demons, and she was just overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord for her deliverance that she ministered to him and his men faithfully ever since with her finances and also in any practical way that she could, but maybe washing their clothes, cooking their food. She traveled with a big group. Actually, the scripture says, with many Galilean women following the Lord and his disciples. She was fully convinced that he was truly the long-awaited Messiah, but she was not comprehending, as really was no one else who followed him, that he was God incarnate. That he was 100% man and 100% God. And he had come to earth to basically to die, to atone for the sins of the world so that eternal peace with God would once again be possible for man as it had been before the fall in the garden. 
Now, in our last set of lessons, we tried to imagine Mary's mental and emotional state, her anguish, and the other women, which would include the Lord's mother Mary, another Mary, (laughs) as they watched the one they genuinely believed was the Genesis 3.15 promised seed of the woman, their deliverer. They watched him being nailed to a cruel Roman cross to die as a common criminal. Can you imagine the heart of a mother as she watches her son go through that? And the hearts of Mary and the other women, you know, even his aunt, just they loved him so dearly. I cannot imagine watching him being nailed to a cross. He had been the greatest, the most perfect the kindest, the most loving, the most supernaturally powerful man that they knew this world had ever seen. He had proven repeatedly that he could read their minds. He had performed creative miracles, like turning water into wine. That's a creative miracle. He could command the um, could command nature. He could calm a storm with just words. He could make fish jump into nets. I mean, he, he could... Uh, heal every kind of disease he could replace limbs even he could heal a man born blind he could give sight to the blind hearing to the deaf on and on he could even cleanse leprosy and what else could he do raise the dead he silenced even his most elitely educated enemies in the jewish religious hierarchy with his profound wisdom and his scriptural knowledge no one knew the scripture like Jesus Christ. Why would that be? Well, he is the word of God. He was surely, they were convinced, he was surely the Davidic king they believed would overthrow their Roman oppressors and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. But to the shock of his followers, he had put up absolutely no resistance whatsoever to his betrayal by one of his own and then his arrest. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And next thing they knew, there he was, beaten and bloodied almost beyond human recognition, nailed to a cross between two thieves at the place of a skull. What does Calvary mean? Place of a skull. Unless he somehow miraculously came down from that cross as the crowds were taunting him to do, and who was behind their taunts? No one else but Satan. He would die. Unless he came down. And they figured he had the miraculous power to do so, but he wasn't. He would die, and with him would die all of their hopes, or at least they thought so. Now, strange and eerie things took place while he hung there. We talked about those, didn't we? And after that mysterious three-hour darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m., he demonstrated. Now, he'd been hanging there for six hours going through all the agony of, you know, not being able to breathe and the pain and just torture of hanging on a cross for six hours. And yet at the end of the six hours, when the darkness lifted and it was 3 p.m., he demonstrated the strength of a lion as he shouted out in a loud voice, what? You got it. It is finished. And that's one word in the Aramaic, telestai. (laughs) and the earth itself shook. We said it was almost like it was God's amen to his son's victory cry. And simultaneously, at the same time, the four-inch thick temple veil tore from top to bottom. I believe it happened just as Jesus himself 
regally bowed his head and voluntarily dismissed his own spirit from his physical body. I believe as he bowed, that temple veil ripped and the way into God's holy presence was opened for all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. He dismissed as a king his own spirit. He laid down his own life, didn't he? No one took it from him. He laid it down voluntarily. However, none of these mighty miracles associated with both the crucifixion and the death of the Lord or his seven profound and prophetic utterances from, that he spoke from the cross, none of those helped to relieve the complete despair and despondency of his followers, did it? I mean, they saw all these things, and I'm sure they knew they were strange. I mean, they didn't know about the temple veil being rent until later, um, but they saw the darkness and everything else and his utterances and how amazing they were, but none of that got through to them. And if we had been there, probably wouldn't have gotten through to us either. All they knew was that he was gone, and not one of them took any comfort in the fact that he had told them ahead of time, many times, that all this would happen. He had been warning them for a long time that he was going to be betrayed. He would be uh, turned over by the Jews to the Gentiles. He would be scourged. He would be spit upon. All that he would go through, he would be crucified. None of that seemed to be remembered by them. Especially, what did they forget? The end of that, when he would say, but on the third day, I will rise again. So, you know, they did not remember. It's amazing to me that none of his followers remembered his third day prediction, but who did remember his third day prediction? His enemies. His enemies. That's why they had the tomb sealed. Well, Mary Magdalene, with the other women, had remained there at Golgotha, or Calvary, the place of the skull, the entire six hours of the crucifixion. Now, the mother of Mary did not remain there for the, for the last three hours because John was commanded to take care of her by the Lord Jesus himself, so she was removed from that scene. But all the other women were there the entire six hours. And seeing Jesus so disgraced brought Mary Magdalene and the others immense anguish. But she and the other Galilean female disciples, which is what they were, they were female disciples, they were determined to show their love for their master to the bitter end by their mere presence. These women were strong, weren't they, to stay there that entire time. Were there any of the apostles there? Only John, only John. And he took Mary, so we don't know. He, he missed some of it. He might have come back at the end. But the others could have been there, but maybe way off at a safe distance. We don't know. But the women were there to the bitter end, till the bitter end. And when the Roman soldiers determined that Jesus was dead, and one of them made absolute sure that he was dead by doing what? Thrusting a spear into his side. We talked about how it obviously went up into his heart and out issued blood and water. He was dead. No doubt about it. These guys were experts. They knew he was dead. That's important because there are theories that say, well, he never really died and he just swooned and was uh, revived when he was in the coolness of the tomb, you know, unwrapped himself from all those grave clothes and pushed away a two-ton stone, got out, passed the Roman guy. I mean, ridiculous. Anyway, he was dead. Uh, and when the Roman soldiers determined he was, they turned his body over by Pilate's consent to a rich Jewish official of the Sanhedrin council. Isn't that amazing? 
of the Sanhedrin council. There was a secret disciple. Actually, there were two in that council, and they came out at the very end by God's orchestration. Um, and Joseph of Arimathea requested the uh, body of the Lord so that he could bury it in his own hewn-out rich man garden tomb. And Mary and the other women followed Joseph to that beautiful tomb where he was joined by another wealthy Jewish official, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And these two one-time secret disciples in high places then prepared and wrapped the Lord's body in some 75 pounds of spices and linen strips and placed him in that tomb before the setting of the sun. Because when the sun went down, according to the Jews, it was the beginning of a new day. And what was that next day? It was a high holy day, for it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, without these two men coming forth from their secrecy at the very time that they did, we discussed this. What would have happened to the body of our Lord? Well, it would have been thrown somewhere in disgrace and obscurity. No one would know that the tomb was empty, that he had resurrected, because they wouldn't be sure where his body was. The burial of our Lord was completely contrary to the normal custom of both the Romans and the Jews. And we discussed what they normally would do. I'm not going to take the time to review that, but it was totally contrary. But it was in fulfillment of what God had said some 700 years earlier through his prophet Isaiah that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, right? He would die with transgressors, but he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And Joseph was very rich. So God was seeing to it, you see, that there was ample proof and testimony to both the death and the burial of the body of his son. You see, these two pieces of the bad news had to be presented so that the good news of the resurrection was verifiable. My little seven-year-old granddaughter, Noel Hope. Now, there's a good name, Hope. Noel Hope. <laughs> That's a good name, isn't it? <laughs> and she wasn't even born at Christmas time. But she has this little habit. She likes to call me, or when she comes to visit, she always says, Grandma. I got good news and I got bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? And I always say, well, let me have, let me have the bad news first. Let's get that over with first, okay? And then we'll hear the good news. Um, and that's exactly what the Lord does. He gives us bad news. Jesus died. Bad news. Jesus was buried. And then the good news, but he resurrected on the third day, just as he said. You see, the good news then makes both of the bad pieces of bad news good news, Right? Are you following me? Yes, it's Tuesday, not Monday, so you're following me. Good. So Mary Magdalene left the dismal scene of Christ's burial sometime later after agreeing. You know, she and the women stayed there. They watched the whole burial from a distance, you know, to respect the Lord because they he was naked and they wrapped him up, put him in the tomb. But they stayed there sitting. Remember, we read that, I think it was in Matthew. They were the last ones to leave the scene that night. Um, and they obviously were weeping their hearts out, but they also had to determine together that they would return to the tomb early on Sunday morning after the two back-to-back -back Sabbaths. We do teach here a Thursday crucifixion, and if you don't understand why, we have a CD on that. And also we have, I think it's the first lesson in book six where we discuss that. It's the only way you can get the fact that the Lord was in the belly of the earth for how long? Three days and three nights. This is the Thursday crucifixion. It makes perfect sense 
The, the next day was a Sabbath because it was a high day, holy Sabbath. And then the day after that, that would be Friday. And then the next day was the regular weekly Sabbath, Saturday. And on the third day, Sunday, he rose from the dead. But they determined together that they would go back to the tomb on Sunday morning with additional spices. Now, do you think the Lord's body needed any more than 75 pounds of <laughs> of spices, myrrh, and aloes that were put in those linen strips? No, but they were women, weren't they? And what do women like to do? We always like to do just something more, you know, just just show him. They, were, they longed to perform one final act of ministering kindness for their Lord. And then, very early Sunday morning, three nights and three days later, Mary Magdalene headed out to the tomb like they had planned with two or three other women. And for whatever reason, she was the first one to arrive at the tomb. We don't know why that is, if she came from a different location and it was closer to the tomb, or if she was younger and she ran faster. But whatever reason, she got there first. And when she got there, she experienced another traumatic setback, which was really the result of two things, both of them her own fault. Number one, her traumatic setback was the result of her lack of attention to the Lord's numerous resurrection predictions, she and all the others. She got to the tomb, saw that the stone was rolled away, and was very upset. Someone's taken his body. She did not remember that he had said over and over again, at least seven times recorded in the scripture for us. We know he probably said it more than seven times. He also gave them pictures which i'll talk about later like jonah being in the belly of the whale and other things so she had heard it over and over but she completely forgot secondly was her the result of her trauma at the open tomb was her lack of attention to the evidence both around and in the tomb especially in the tomb mary did not take the time to investigate the scene did she instead she did what a lot of us are so good at doing my only exercise, jumping to conclusions. <laughs> she jumped to a conclusion based on seeing to her horrified alarm that the huge stone was removed from the tomb entrance. And to her mind, without investigating, she just decided someone had stolen the Lord's body. Not only had her beloved master been betrayed by Judas, I mean, she knew Judas very well, how could he do that? He had been betrayed by one of his friends and unjustly sentenced to death and crucified. But now he had been even further disgraced by being stolen. The Lord was stolen. Isn't that kind of oxymoronic? The Lord was stolen. She couldn't even have closure. You know, she couldn't even say goodbye to his body. And as I mentioned, she did not investigate the scene very well. Mary was kind of the counterpart of Peter. She was pretty impetuous, wasn't she? She did not bend down to look in the tomb. I, why, I don't know, but she didn't. Um, but if she had, would she have seen any evidence in there that might convince her that somebody did not steal the Lord's body? Yes, she would have seen something very spectacular, the empty grave clothes. Neither did she hang around to examine the evidence outside of the tomb. I mean, obviously, there must have been the remains <clears throat> of a Roman campfire. There had been at least 12 to 16 Roman guards there, and we had talked about that, too. We'll talk about it even more in lessons to come. But uh, she didn't notice or take the time to notice the broken Roman seal. Or if she had hung around a little bit, maybe she would have noticed that angel sitting on the 
top of the, <laughs> the tombstone. Remember the angel that descended from heaven and was accompanied by an earthquake and then he himself single-handedly rolled away the, the one to two ton stone in front of the tomb entrance? I mean, the Lord had already resurrected. He wasn't opening it so that the Lord could come out. He'd already been resurrected. Um, but the angel removed. And then what did he do? What did the angel do? He hopped up on the, on the stone and was sitting there. And when the other women come, he goes, hi, ladies. You know? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe if Mary had stayed around a little bit and looked and had her eyes open, she would have seen the angel. And he might have told her, he isn't here. Why are you crying? He's risen, as he said. But she didn't do any of that. She didn't stay around. She just took off running, didn't she? And where did she go? Well, she went straight to where she knew Peter and John were staying. Wherever that was, we don't know. But they were hiding out somewhere because they were afraid for their lives. They were afraid of the Jews. And she ran to give them her, like little Noel would say, her bad news. <laughs> she thought. Of course, it was only seemingly bad because it was false. A lot of bad news is really good news, but we don't know that. Am I saying no? A lot of bad news is bad news because it's false news. That, there you go. I got it right. Anyway, to her, it was bad news. But it was really, really, she could have been giving the greatest news that had ever happened. Someone had risen from the dead bodily. No one had ever done that before. The other ones were revivals. They weren't resurrections, Lazarus and, you know, the widow's son of Nain. Those were just revivals. They still had their mortal flesh and blood bodies. He was resurrected in a glorified body, an incorruptible body. But she went and she told them, oh, boo-hoo, someone has stolen or taken or moved the Lord's body. Obviously, she never once, never once suspected that it was the disciples themselves who had taken the Lord's body. Think about it. They were scared to death for their lives. Uh, they were not even remembering anything about his resurrection. So why would they take his body in order to promote a bodily resurrection? You know, hide it somewhere. Why would they be willing to die for that? And um, there was another thought in my mind a minute ago. Why they wouldn't have done that. Um, anyway, maybe it'll come to me later. But there were many reasons why she didn't even suspect. Oh, here it is. He had been given a very respectful burial, right, in a rich man's tomb. So why would they remove him to somewhere else? I mean, that was beyond their wildest imaginations, that he would be buried in a place like that. So they thought that was of God, let's leave him there. They had no intention of trying to steal his body. But, of course, they could never make it past the Roman garden. I mean, the whole idea is a, a ridiculous anyway. But when the two men, Peter and John, heard her report, her false report, what did they do? I'm sure the first thing they did is said, well, Mary, what did you see when you looked in the tomb? And she goes, oops, forgot to do that. <laughs> forgot to look in the tomb. And so they immediately take off for the tomb. And now this is kind of brave because they're scared, but they're going out. Now it's day. They're going out in public um, to investigate the tomb for themselves to check out her story and to do what she had not done, which is to go look inside the tomb. And sure enough, when they got to the garden tomb, John got there first, and then Peter, the stone was removed from the entrance, as she had said, and both men discovered that the tomb was empty of the Lord's body. We talked about that fact that the men didn't see or speak to any angels, did they? 
Now Mary will return, and she does actually see angels. All the women who went to the tomb actually saw and talked to angels. You know that? But the men didn't. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But they didn't see. And the angels, for some reason, didn't make themselves visible to the men. The men weren't going to need the angels because when John looked in the tomb, he did not see the body. But what did he see? He saw the hollow shell of the grave clothes and the head napkin lying in a separate place, a separate location by itself on the shelf inside the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid to rest. And there was no body in those grave clothes. It was kind of like a yeah, cocoon. Uh, you know, that a caterpillar, that a butterfly has come out of, maybe a little bit collapsed, but still in the shape of the body. If either friend or foe had decided to first unwrap the body before carrying it off naked, which why would they want to do that? But if they had decided to do that, there would be no way feasible that they could leave those wrappings intact the way that they were. They would have been torn. I mean, the, the mixture of myrrh and aloes, the spices that were layered between the linen cloth, was like a gummy glue. You couldn't unwrap it without having, you know, torn, scattered, shredded wrappings everywhere, which would, you know, obviously give evidence of vandalism behind. You could never unwrap the body in its and keep it in its the grave clothes in its original convolutions. It's just impossible. With the headpiece then likewise in its original wrapped up condition, kind of like a turban, the Greek word used is like wrapped up like a turban, in a separate location. That gummy myrrh mixture inside the folds made it impossible to unwrap the corpse without tearing and damaging the wrappings, period. You think about it, go home and think about it. I did. I spent hours thinking about it and how if I was inside of that, how could I unwrap myself with my hands like this? I mean, it's just absolutely impossible. Everything pointed to the fact that Christ had risen right up out of those grave clothes and right out of that sealed tomb before the angel had came and removed the tombstone. Well, John, in John 20, now finally you get to look at John 20, look at verse 8. We learned from John himself that he instantly, when he saw those grave clothes, he got it. He instantly believed that Jesus had risen out of those grave clothes. And this is important. Now look at verse 9. Let me read those two verses. It says in verse 8, then, in, then went in also that other disciple, that's John talking about himself, which came first to the sepulcher, because he was probably younger and outran Peter, and he saw and what? And believed. Now that's not his salvation belief, okay? That's his belief in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Now, verse 9 is very important. John tells us this. He says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John is stating here in verse 9 that he did not, he and the other apostles, he says they, they did not yet understand at that time from the scriptures what scripture would he be talking about at this point in time? Was there a New Testament? No. He's talking about the Old Testament. 
He and the other apostles did not yet understand at this time when they saw the empty, when he saw the empty grave clothes, that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures promised that the Savior would rise from the dead. In fact, must rise from the dead. This, you see, is a very clear affirmation that Old Testament scripture does indeed testify as to the resurrection of Christ. It not only teaches it, but it teaches that he must rise from the dead. That's exactly what Peter pointed out on, in his first sermon. Peter. Now, Peter didn't get it right now at the tomb. He gets it later on. But on the first day of, of uh, the day of Pentecost, you know, when he's enlightened fully by the Holy Spirit and he gives his first sermon, what does he say? Well, he quotes from Psalm 16. Is that Old Testament? Yes, that's Old Testament. He quotes from that psalm and he says that it is not possible that death could hold the Lord of life. Think that through. He is life itself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. Christ is life. How could death hold life? How can darkness hold back light? It's impossible. It's impossible that death would hold the prince of life. He must rise from the dead. His flesh would not see corruption. Remember? God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. But John, who wrote his gospel account many years later, after the tomb scene, admitted that at the time he saw those empty grave clothes, he was ignorant of these things in the scripture. And we know he wasn't remembering the Lord's third day resurrection predictions. So John's faith in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus was based initially solely on the condition of the empty grave clothes. That is what is called empirical evidence. First-hand eyewitness experienced observed evidence. The scientists like that kind of evidence, don't they? You see, God in his omniscience knew all of the denials and all of the criticisms and all of the various attacks over the centuries to come that would be leveled against the Bible and against the bodily resurrection of his son. There are those, this may shock some of you, there are those in seminaries being taught by apostate professors around this country who teach that the apostles themselves misread, misinterpreted, and manipulated the Old Testament scriptures in order to find proof texts for their belief regarding Jesus and his resurrection. That's taught. It's pretty prevalent out there. In fact, I'm going to get into a lot of things now in, in the rest of my lesson about the fact that Jesus rose bodily, not just in spirit. Because a lot of pastors, and you might even want to ask your pastor, a lot of pastors at Easter time will talk about the resurrection, but sometimes if you nail them down, do you believe in a bodily resurrection? They're a lot like the Sadducees. Oh, no, he rose in spirit. And then they'll say, well, what difference does it make? He rose. You know, the death was the important thing. We want to discuss that. See, that's not true. And th so this is why John's statement here in verse 9 is very important because it serves as a flat denial 
that the apostles, that's why he uses the word they, the pronoun they, it's a flat denial that they lifted out texts, verses, passages from the scripture to support what they wanted to believe. It is a denial of any manipulation of the Old Testament passages to fit the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because John is admitting here that both he and the other disciples did not know at this point that anything in the Old Testament scriptures taught the resurrection of the Messiah. Guess what? They didn't even know that the Old Testament scriptures taught that the Messiah would die. Did they? No. That's why the first time they heard it, Peter said, Oh, Lord, be it far from thee. You can't die. You can't be killed. And he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. So, in other words, the apostles did not come to faith in Christ resurrected by believing the Old Testament scriptures. You get it? Are you getting it? I know it's kind of deep. Don't want to scare all of you new ones away, but this is important. John here is giving his testimony that he came to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead by way of empirical evidence. It was first by the proof given in the manner in which he found the empty grave clothes and the head napkin lying in his own place. And then second, his faith was absolutely nailed down and confirmed, and all the rest of the disciples as well, when they became firsthand eyewitnesses of who? The resurrected Lord Jesus himself. Not just once, but numerous times during the next 40 days. And John actually, as I said earlier, was privileged to see the Lord in his old age when he was exiled on Patmos. Well, now back at the tomb, we learned that Peter, who was still pretty heavy with guilt and shame, wasn't he? Because of his three denials of the Lord. Peter looks inside, sees exactly the same thing, you know, the grave clothes that John had seen, and it doesn't tell us he believed. It tells us he was amazed, and in that word it means he was puzzled and mystified, but he didn't get it. And I think it was his guilt at this point kind of keeping him back from understanding. But I've got a question for you, and I just gave you a big hint. Who was the first apostle to see the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. It was Peter. Peter's the first one. Do you know on Resurrection Sunday, this might be news to some of you, that the Lord appeared five times on Resurrection Sunday? He had five post-resurrection appearances. The first one was to Mary Magdalene. The second one was to the group of Galilean women. The third one was to Peter. How do we know that? That he was the first apostle that's given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. There he's called Cephas. That was his other, you know, Aramaic name or something like that. Um, So he's the first one. When he saw the resurrected Christ, then I think the grave clothes made sense. So he was kind of the opposite of John. John saw the grave clothes and believed, and then it was confirmed by seeing the resurrected Christ. Peter saw the resurrected Christ first, and then it went, ah, light bulbs. Now I get the empty grave clothes. But let me finish. Mary, the group of Galilean women, Cephas. Then who were the next ones that Jesus appeared to on Resurrection Sunday? The two men are two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the fifth appearance was later that evening when he suddenly appeared in the upper room to all of the apostles. Minus Thomas and minus Judas, of course. Judas was gone by then. But that was five times on Resurrection Sunday. And what is five the number of in the Bible? Grace. Isn't that perfect? All right. So the two men left the tomb and Mary 
arrived. Mary had gone and told them the message and they ran off. And then, I don't know, she was a little bit slower this time. She's running out of energy, but she gets to the tomb after them for her second Sunday morning visit to the tomb. And again, she is completely alone. But this time she does bend over to take a look inside. And what she saw there, there's no mention of her seeing the grave clothes. I'm sure she did, but she doesn't I mean, John doesn't tell us that. Instead, he tells us that she looks in and she sees two men dressed in beautiful white garments sitting in the tomb at the head and at the foot of where the Lord's body had laid. They were holy angels, weren't they? But she is still so distraught with emotion over the Lord's missing body that she doesn't even see, be, seem startled to see them. Isn't it kind of amazing? You look into a tomb and you see, if she didn't know they were angels, wouldn't she wonder why two men dressed in white robes were sitting in the tomb? Wouldn't you think she'd scratch her head? What are you guys doing in here? Did you take the body? <laughs> um, but she doesn't seem startled, and I'm sure they look like angels, and she should be used to spiritual creatures because she had been possessed by seven demons, right? But anyway, she doesn't seem very shocked to see them, and when they talk to her they ask her why she's crying she immediately gives them her false message again doesn't she her false oxymoronic message that she had spouted out to the disciples she says i'm crying because they have taken away my lord and i don't know where they have put him and then without waiting for their return response okay she's bent down looking at the angels in the tomb she doesn't wait for them to say anything back to her Instead, she turns around and is now facing the outside of the tomb. And who does she see standing smack dab right there in front of her, face to face? The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the first time that he's appeared to anybody. But she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't recognize him. And we speculated, why do you think that is? I don't know if she's still blinded by her sorrow. I don't know if it's her tears that are blurring her vision or her belief in her own false conclusion. But something, something blinded her and she did not recognize the Lord. And then he speaks his first recorded resurrected words. And what was his very first word? What was the first word out of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ's mouth? Woman! Come on! Woman! (laughs) First word he said was woman. Why weepest? And it wasn't a typical of him to ask questions. He was always asking questions throughout his ministry. He's the same resurrected Lord Jesus, same today, yesterday, and forever. He asks questions. Woman, why weepest thou? Who seekest? Who are you seeking? So she thinks he's the cemetery carekeeper. And isn't he really? He really is the cemetery carekeeper. He keeps the cemeteries all over the world. I mean, he's watching. He knows where everybody's buried. One day he's going to say, like Lazarus, he's going to say everybody's name. who knew him, and up out of the graves they're going to go. He is the cemetery carekeeper, but not the way she thought. And she thought, oh, well, maybe he has removed the Lord's body. And so she asked him very politely, please, sir, tell me where you have put him. And here's where she really gets kooky. Tell me where you have put him. She never explains to this gardener who him is. But then she says, and I will take him away. Okay, think that through. Jesus was about 33 years of age, okay? Big man, big man. I mean, I don't know how tall, but he was in his prime. And he walked a lot, so I'm sure he was muscular. And now he was covered with 75 pounds of uh, (laughs) 
spices. Ah, but no, he wasn't because she had just probably seen the grave clothes. So he wasn't covered with that, but he would be there for what? Naked and probably slimy. Okay, tell me where you put him and I'm going to carry through public a naked, slimy man. No, Mary, you're not going to be doing that. But she's just, you know, she is really distraught. And again, okay, she says that to the gardener, but she doesn't wait for him to answer. She says, well, please, sir, tell me, did you take him? No, she doesn't wait for an answer. What does she do instead? Spins around again to face the tomb. Because you see where her focus is? She still has her mind and focus on a dead Savior. So she turns back to the tomb. And when she does, behind her, the Lord says one word, and that little sheep knows the voice of her good shepherd. What was the one word the Lord Jesus said to little distraught Mary? He said her name. And the sheep know the name of their shepherd. He said, Mary, and man, she spun around and she said, Rabboni, and she clung to him. Remember, she just grabbed him. And when he says, don't touch me, he's saying in the Greek, don't cling to me, Mary. We have a different relationship from now on. You've seen me. You know the truth. I've risen. Now you got a job to do. Go tell. Go tell the disciples. And she did. She obeyed. The Lord Jesus stood before Mary very much alive, very healthy, and he stood before her bodily, physically. We see this also. She clung to him. You cannot cling to a spirit. And we see this evidence given to us in his next post-resurrection appearance, which was to the other women. Now, the other women had been talked to by angels, right? They knew he was risen from the dead. The angels told them. So that when they're on their way to tell the disciples the good news, the true news, their hearts are properly prepared because they're focused now on a living Savior, aren't they? So when he suddenly appears before them on their road to tell the disciples and says, kind of strange, all hail. <laughs> it's like, howdy, ladies. <laughs> How you doing? It means grace and all that kind of stuff. But he, they're prepared, aren't they? they they're more prepared than Mary was because she's focused on a dead Savior. They're focused on a living Savior. So when they see him, what do they do? They respond properly. They don't cling to him to hold him. They fall down at his feet, touch him. Again, bodily resurrection. They touch him and they worship him. You know, death could not hold the Lord of life. To pay the wages for our sin, which is what? Death. The Lord Jesus had to die both spiritually and physically. When Adam and Eve, when they were told if they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were told that they would die, and they did. They died when they ate that fruit in disobedience to God. They immediately died spiritually, didn't they? Because God had to turn his back on them. They were separated from God. And they began the process of dying physically. So Jesus, in order to pay the wages of sin, which is death, had to die both spiritually and physically. Now, when, he, when did he die spiritually? Well, he died spiritually. The father had to turn his back on the son. He endured the equivalent of an eternity of separation from God the Father during the three hours of the dark silence on the cross. That's, you know, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he literally became sin for you and I. He never ceased to be the eternal son of God. 
Just like when I'm, I, you know, was born in sin, as all of you were, but I didn't cease to be Catherine. I was spiritually dead. When he became sin and God had to turn his back on him, he still was the eternal son of God, but he was separated in his fellowship from God. He died spiritually. Well, just as he died spiritually, he also had to die physically, which we know he did. Now, let me see what you remember from last year, those of you who were with us. How do we know that Jesus was raised back to spiritual life, that he was resurrected spiritually in his fellowship with God before he died? How do we know that? Anybody remember how we know that he was raised back into fellowship with God before he died? Which is important. You need to be in a right relationship with God before you die. (laughs) It was from... His last utterance on the cross. Okay, remember, seven utterances spoken from the cross. The first one was when he was being nailed to the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's in his relationship with his father. When he became sin for us on the cross, his middle utterance, it wasn't my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? It was what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was spiritually separated from his father. How do we know he was again in fellowship with his father? What was his last utterance from the cross? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So we know he was resurrected spiritually. Well, how then do we know that he was resurrected physically? Obviously, we know it from his bodily resurrection. Remember the great sign that he gave to the religious authorities at the very beginning of his public ministry. The first time he went to Jerusalem in his public ministry, he went straight to the temple. And what did he do? He saw all kinds of corruption going on with Annas's Bazaar and the greedy money changers and animal sellers. And single-handedly, he cleansed it. Well, that was actually a messianic sign, a big one, because in Malachi it says that when the Messiah comes, comes you will know him because he'll come suddenly to his temple and he'll cleanse it okay there you go big sign but what do the religious authorities do they go to him they're angry because he's just upset them that's their profiteering thing and they say show us a sign that you have the authority to do this and what does he give them as his sign destroy this temple and in three days i'll raise it back and john tells us in john 2 19 that what was he speaking about when he said destroy this temple his body okay destroy this body and in three days i will raise it up what was he going to raise up his body okay not just his spirit right his body he was predicting a bodily resurrection also remember that the lord jesus christ used jonah as his resurrection sign to israel jonah well let me ask you a question When Jonah came out of the belly of the whale after three days and three nights, did he come out in spirit only? No. So if Jesus is giving him as a sign of the resurrection, he came out just like Jonah did. He came out bodily. Well, even better than Jonah because Jonah had to come out in the same body, all full of uh, belly, whale belly slime. Ah, no wonder everybody in Nineveh repented when they saw him. If Christ did not rise bodily from the grave on the third day after his death, then his great sacrifice and shed blood on the cross is meaningless. Oh, Catherine, what did you just say? That's horrible. How could you say that? 
How could a sacrifice like his ever be meaningless? Well, it would be without the bodily resurrection. It would be meaningless. His death and his shed blood would be meaningless without the resurrection because Christ's own predictions, as I just mentioned, would not have been fulfilled. Remember how we talked about how many prophecies he fulfilled during the whole crucifixion process, the trial, everything leading up to the, you know, even the last minute when he said, I thirst, that fulfilled the prophecy. And we said, if he forgot one thing, if he didn't fulfill one prophecy in the Old Testament, he would disqualify to be the Messiah, our Savior. Well, here's one more, even after his death. If he did not rise bodily, destroy this temple, and I'll rise it up in three days. If he did not rise bodily from the tomb, he would be a false prophet because that would be one messianic prediction that was not fulfilled. As we said, the Old Testament is full of you know, prophecies that say he would rise from the dead. So if he was a false prophet, what would his death mean in his shed blood? Nothing. It would just be another sinner dying the death of a criminal. And it wouldn't benefit you and I one single bit. Well, <clears throat> I give other supports. I don't know. I'm running out of time. One, let me just mention one really quickly, and you can look it up on your own. I think I've got it somewhere in your homework. But also in... In Hebrews chapter 9, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ entered into the holy place in heaven to offer his blood as an atonement, you know, for our, for our sins. Um, hey, Betty, I just saw you. Good to see you again. But he had to rise bodily in order to do that. And it tells us in Hebrews 9 that he entered into the true tabernacle, not made with hands. You know, in heaven, there is a tabernacle. It is the tabernacle of God in heaven. There's an altar and everything up there. And that's what the tabernacle on earth was patterned after, was the true tabernacle. Well, he had to rise bodily in order to offer his blood on the true altar in heaven. I didn't make that up. It's in Hebrews chapter 9. Also, remember, Paul referred to Jesus as the first fruit of the uh, first fruits of the resurrection, didn't he? Well, if he only rose spiritually, if he only rose in his spirit, Paul couldn't have said he was the first fruit of the resurrection because there were all kinds of spirits that had already risen and they were in paradise, weren't they? From Adam all the way back. He wouldn't have been the first fruits of the resurrection unless Paul is talking about a physical bodily resurrection. Do you know the Jews never used the word resurrection as speaking of a spirit? It was always bodily. Never is the word resurrection used in the whole Bible just to speak of a spiritual resurrection. It speaks of a bodily resurrection. Have I made my point good enough? Okay, now let's get on to something fun. This is where we'll end, and this is your bonus question, but I think you'll enjoy this. The very, you know, I, I, I was telling the ladies yesterday, we should not be surprised that the gospel message is a triunity, that it consists of three parts and every one of those parts is absolutely necessary. We do indeed need to know that Jesus died, that his body died, okay? We need to know that, that he was truly dead. We need to know that he was buried and where he was buried so that we know the tomb was empty. We need to know those two first two pieces of bad news so that we know and trust the third piece of the gospel, which is that he rose from the tomb. All right, so, but it shouldn't surprise us that the gospel message, the greatest message that man has ever heard and ever will hear, how you can be saved, which is by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's 
consists of three parts. Why shouldn't that surprise us? Well, because our God is a three-part God, isn't he? I mean, he's one God, but he consists of three persons. The very first name for God in the Bible is what? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Do you know, actually, in Hebrew, that's seven words? Wouldn't you know the first sentence in the Bible consisted of seven words? Because that's perfection, isn't it? But the name for God used there is Elohim. Well, whenever you see a Hebrew word with I am on the end, it's plural. Elohim is a plural name for God. And yet, when it says created, that's a singular verb. Elohim is a plural name with a singular meaning. It's what is called a uniplural proper noun. And what this testifies to is the uniplurality of the Godhead. See, God is one. We do not believe in many gods. We believe in one God, yet he is three persons in that one Godhead. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is what I like to call a triunity. And he agreed in his three persons, talking to himself. Do you ever do that? Well, that's very godlike. If you talk to yourself, it's godlike. Because God was talking to himself. And he said, let us make God in our own image. Did he make man in his own image? Yes, because like God, we have a personality. And we are also one person, but we consist of three parts. I am Catherine, but I consist of a body, a soul, and a spirit. I was indeed made in the image of God. However, before Elohim created man, he created a universe in which to place man. In the very first creative activity of God, we find a universe that consists of three components that cannot exist in this physical universe without one another, which explains why God made them simultaneously. What are they? Time, space, and matter. And that's exactly what we read in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, time, God. The source, the energy, created the heaven, space, and the earth, matter. Time, space, and matter. Time consists of three phases, past, present, and future. Space consists of three dimensions. What are they? Height, width, and length. The atom, A-T-O-M, the basic element of all matter, consists of three parts, the proton, the neutron, and the electron. Does that take you back a few years <laughs> to science classes? God created also three places of activity on the earth. He created the heavens, the atmospheric heavens, the land masses, and the waters. And three basic entities to fill the earth. Vegetation, animals, and humans. And these three entities demonstrate three levels of life. Vegetation, plant life, has what we call unconscious life. Your little flowers in your garden are not conscious of their existence. Animals have what we call, I mean, uh, unconscious. Did I say unconscious life? They have unconscious life. Animals have what we call conscious life, <clears throat> but they don't have self-consciousness. They can't think about, why am I here? Where am I going? Oh, poor me. Mommy didn't let me out to pee today. Um, you know, that's why they, that's why we love them, <laughs> because they're not self-centered, right? <laughs> yeah. 
But animals <clears throat> have conscious life, and then humans possess self-consciousness and also God-consciousness. We have the capacity to think about God. Who made us? Where did we come from? So you have unconscious life, conscious life, and self-conscious life. All vegetation is classified in one of three categories. You have your grasses, your herbs, and your trees. That's all biblical. It's in, the, in Genesis. <clears throat> all an animal life is classified in one of three types of creatures. Sea creatures, animal creatures, and air creatures. <clears throat> God has a special division for people, which he gives us in 1 Corinthians. He talks about Jews, Gentiles, and the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the way, there are also three types of personal beings in this universe. There is God, there are angels, and there are human beings. It is yet another reflection of the tri-unity Godhead that there are three basic types of energies and forces that interact in the cosmic universe. Nuclear, gravitational, and electromagnetic. Another evidence of God's triunity is the fact that the earth moves in three ways. The earth spins on its axis. What else does it do? It revolves around the sun and that it, it moves around the whole universe within the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, and by the way, guess what? The earth happens to be the third planet from the sun. There are also three realms of heaven. There are the atmospheric heavens, there are the universal heavens, all the galaxies and everything, and then there is the third heaven where God dwells. Water, which makes up about 75% of this earth's surface, and which is also the natural resource most mentioned in the Bible, water represents, symbolizes the word of God. It also symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Water is the only chemical that exists on earth, on earth at earth, temperatures in three different forms and you know what they are solid ice liquid water and vapor or gas humidity all three forms of water are mandatory for a healthy earth and there are you're all waiting for me to get to this one I just know you are I'm being facetious there are also three types of rocks on earth what are they Igneous, come on. Very good. Igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary. Well, not only does the outside of the earth consist of three parts, the waters, the land masses, and the atmospheric heavens, but the inside of the earth is also divided into three parts. There is the mantle, the outer core, and the inner core. Do you think all of this is just coincidence? By the way, I could do all this with sixes, too. It's earth, you know, made for man. Do you know the earth weighs... I can't remember what it is. I've got it written down. Yeah, it's in sixes. It's all in sixes, sh short tons, some, some big number of short tons, but it's all in sixes. And it moves at like 66,000 miles a minute or something, but they're all in sixes. We could have the same fun with sixes as we are having with threes here. But this is not coincidence. Also think about this. Every one of us in this room can trace ourselves back to one, well, we can't. <laughs> But if we could, we could trace our... Well, yeah, we can. What am I talking about? Duh. We could trace ourselves back to one of Noah's three sons. I think we could do that. Yeah, we could do that. And, of course, their wives. Their wives are pretty important, too. But we all come from one of three pairs of people. Um, there were three offices of, of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. 
There are three sections of the tabernacle. You have the outer court, the inner court, and the holy place. Christ's earthly ministry was for how many years? Three years. How old was he when he died, they say? Thirty-three. How long was he in the belly of the earth? Three days and three nights. So therefore, do you think it should surprise us that the gospel message, the greatest news for mankind to hear regarding the salvation provided by our triune God is likewise threefold? The bodily death, the bodily burial, and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will get all that as you leave. So I hope you weren't trying to write down all those threes because I did them for you, okay? (laughs) What I want you to do this week, here, listen to me. What I want you to do is share all those threes with somebody. Children, grandchildren, husbands, whoever, neighbors, because it is exciting. Evolution is not true. Creation is true. There was a big bang. God said. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this time together. We love you. I pray you'll watch over every woman. Use her this week as your salt and light and bring us back safely next week. For we pray in your name. Amen.